Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Theater Podcast. It is 2019. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year, Jillian. Happy New Year. This episode here is with Ani DeFranco, and you might be thinking to yourself that it's a little unusual for a theater-focused podcast to interview somebody like Ani DeFranco, but the the she has a bit of a crossover that, of course, we're going to get into in the episode. Well, if we, we back up real quick, for those who don't know who Ani DeFranco is, because you are a theater person, um, you should know. So Ani is a folk singer and activist who's been around for, what, 20 years now? Mm-hmm. And, no longer than that, yeah. Yeah, and she is she is definitely very much a voice of a generation. She was one of the original feminist folk singers, um, and she's a brilliant songwriter and just wonderful person. Mm-hmm. And a lover of all things theater and Broadway and performing in general. And uh, we do, we, <clears throat> excuse me, we do get into this in, in the episode, but she indirectly had uh, res- had her hands in getting Town to Broadway. Mm-hmm. She helped with the original concept album. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, she worked with Anais Mitchell, who she signed to her record. So without Ani, there would be no Anais, really, to the extent which we know her now. Mm-hmm. And uh, she had a lot of input into the original uh, concepts and the original songs. Yeah. Yeah. Ani, Ani's had an incredible career in, in like, she just, she emancipated herself it, uh, before she was 18, emancipated herself from her parents and just went out um, playing guitar everywhere she could, playing with her guitar teacher. And, and amazingly enough, she just never fell into the same the same, I guess, pattern that most record labels want you to fall into. She was always just like, nope, I'm going to do it myself. And she she talks about this a lot, about her her passion. And she uses the word grit, which in the last couple of years has come around many times in many different uh, references, but it all kind of means the same thing. It's just if you're going to be uber successful, you need grit. You you Or or a hell of a lot of luck or, mm-hmm. you know, a good combination of, of the two. But um She's she's a self-made woman, um, self-made person, and and always has done what she's wanted wanted to do. Stood up for what she believes in. Supports those people who who follow her. Um, follow her is not the right way. Who who are of similar mindset. Who just want to make the world a better place, and and bring bring music for the sake of bringing music, and perform for the sake of performing. And she she talks about a lot of that. Um, in, in that performance, whether it's a band, you know, a, a, a solo singer or a theater production or whatever it is, it performing is all the same. It's bringing, bringing people together, bringing a crew together, bringing your, your cast together. It's bringing an audience together. So in one moment, everyone is experiencing the same thing. Yeah. And that's art. It's the beauty of And I like that. I like that a lot of what you said crosses over from music to theater to dance to to everything it's that passion and it's that drive and that's that special thing that makes this need to create universal and this uh feeling of of bringing everyone together doesn't matter where you are it's it's still this magical experience I don't know. I guess <laughs> going somewhere. I wonder where you're going with that. Nope. Uh, all right. Well, let's get into it here. Everybody, please connect with us online. Theater underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Facebook.com slash official theater podcast. Or you can email us. Let us know what you think. Feedback at the theaterpodcast.com. Please also rate and review us everywhere you find podcasts. Those are very important to keep us going. So please now enjoy this episode with Ani DeFranco. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters. Both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome to the Theater Podcast, intimate, personal conversations with theater's biggest talents. I'm your host, Alan Seals. 
This episode's guest is a little bit different from the normal type of guest that I have on the podcast, as even though you won't see her starring in a Broadway show right now, she's certainly no stranger to performing in front of thousands. An amazing singer and musician, but also a poet, songwriter, activist. She has released more than 20 albums over her 30-year career, not to mention that she is a massive fan of Broadway, which is the tie-in we have here. <laughs> um, I have the absolute pleasure of having with me today Gold Record Gold record maker, Grammy Award winner, and one of this generation's leading ladies of rock, Ani DeFranco. Hey. <laughs> you you're doing? making me sound impressive. You are kind of impressive. I love it. Can I take you with me everywhere I go? Yeah, I will give you that intro yeah. <laughs> everywhere I can. But uh, the format of this podcast is normally we have these people and we get we talk about um, their background, where they came from, and then we mm. get into what they're doing now. So I see absolutely no reason why we can't do that with you. And uh, we'll touch, of course, uh, on your love of theater and Broadway. So for those of you listening, um, we will get to the Broadway stuff. So, yeah, okay, but yes, yeah. I want to know. A little I bit know, of a sidetrack yeah. with the old folk singer. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to know about you. I want to know, tell me about uh, your childhood and, and like you were born in Buffalo. Let's start there. Yeah. Buffalo, New York, center of the universe. Um, went to public school, magnet school. I had a good, you know... Uh, uh, education, I feel like, you know, of the mm -hmm. world. Um, and yeah, got into music when I was nine years old. I got my first guitar and um, just uh, sort of never looked back. Um, you know, I've, I've been following my guitar around ever since. That's, a, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. You, you, so I guess uh, you just go where the music takes you? Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I was just... Um, I've been, this is a, an aside, but I'm on uh, the board of a, a, a free music school in New Orleans now for about 10 years um, called The Roots of Music. And I was just at their annual benefit talking to all the kids that are in that program and just talking to them about how, yeah, the, the language of music, when you learn the language of music and maybe you learn the skill of playing an instrument, it can transform itself into a passport, you know, and it can take you places you never dreamed of, you know, that's the power, mm -hmm. the power of music, the universal language. So I didn't know that when I was a kid, I just was really drawn to it. And, um, you know, thank God it's been, it's been my whole life. Uh, well, going back to your childhood a second, I, I was reading online that you, you became emancipated from your parents at 15. What is that story? Yeah, I mean, my family was a bit um, troubled. Um, my parents split up when I was 11, and I was living with my mom. And um, then my mom decided to move to Connecticut, rural Connecticut. So, yeah, so I went with her and um, to explore her new locale and her new life and determined within a few days this was not for me. So this was when I was 15. So I just went back to Buffalo and I, I started renting a room in this lady's house. Um, that just lasted a few months. Then that situation blew up. And I think, yeah, I spent my 16th birthday in the bus station. <laughs> you know, oh. Classic, just trying to fend in the adult world. And then I got an apartment. I got a job. I just got myself going. Uh, you know, I finished high school uh, when I was 16 mm -hmm. and, um, you know, I was playing music already. So I just... Uh, you were busking with your guitar teacher when you were nine. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then following him around to his little gigs and bars and clubs and coffee houses. And so I continued on that path. I dabbled in college, but I just really sort of continued with the music. That's crazy. And 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 your daughter Peta's sitting behind you right mm. now. How how old is she now? She's 11. 11. So Yeah. Is she following in your footsteps here? Um in some ways, she's a beautiful singer. I mean, she, you know, I I was touring until I was 7 months pregnant. So she was in there absorbing music, pushing her feet against the guitar, oh. like get it away. <laughs> I imagine this cacophony that mm -hmm. she was experiencing. Um, but she came out with perfect pitch, with an incredible sense of melody and harmony, um, more advanced than I 
seriously. Wow. Um, and, uh, but on the other hand, we have led very different lives up till now. Um, yeah, when I was 11, I was already kind of a crazy free agent and, you know, right. she's more a child of the 21st century, you know, much more close to home. Yeah. Uh, you always seem to be a little bit, everything I've read about you, you always seemed a little bit, um, ahead of your, I guess, emotionally ahead of your physical age. Mm. You just kind of always, and in, in, I'm interpreting what I'm reading online, but you're, you've seemed to always uh, have this knack for just being like, nope, I will not compromise who I am. This is mm. me. I will not change my, I am, I am in a very high integrity person. Mm. Uh, I will not compromise, I guess. Mm-hmm. I keep going back to mm-hmm. that, but is, where did that part of you come from? Is that accurate? I think so. I think that's been maybe part of what has drawn people to my work um, is that attitude, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that stance. Um, Where'd that come from? I mean, I I guess, you know, my parents uh, in a way, especially my mother, she's Mm -hmm. super independent lady. Um, Uh... Yeah, just, you know, I mean, she was, you know, she was 50 years old when she picked up and decided to move to Connecticut and start a new life and, um, you know, fearless, mm-hmm. I guess is the word. And um, so she, I think she gifted me with that, you know, just just the fearlessness um, and the rest was like, you know, just making it up as I yeah. went along. Yeah, I guess... You know, you were saying you you went back to Buffalo. You went to Connecticut for a few days, and you're like, "Nope, not for me." And and that's that is a special part of a very small, select group of people who can say, "Nope, I'm this young, but I know I have the mm-hmm. wherewithal mm-hmm. to say I know where home is. I'm going to go back." And especially, you know, like you were saying, you followed the music back. Mm-hmm. Did you go? Did you go back to Buffalo for the music for that scene that you already knew? Yeah. I kind of already had a thing going. I was 15. I was hosting the open mic at Nietzsche's. I was playing every Saturday night at the Essex Street Pub. I had a thing, you know. I had Mm -hmm. a life. And um, I had a purpose. Yeah, I think I was, you know, just sort of lucky to have had that very early on. A sense of what I wanted to do. What I, I always knew what I wanted to do. Strong convictions. And I was driven towards it. You know, I, I've, I've always had a hard time discerning people who are like, oh, I don't know. But I mean, that's also a very human condition too. And probably a beautiful one full of possibilities, you know, to just keep yourself open to mm-hmm. whatever path for much longer. But for me, it was always like, I want to do this. I just don't know why, but I just know I do. Yeah. And I guess that's that's very driven. In in theater, um, they always say, if you can never see yourself doing something else, you should do that. Mm, because yeah. it's such a hard business. Mm, it's not worth it unless <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you must be desperate. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. So I, I, I thank you for sticking with it. Obviously, yeah. you've made quite a bit of a difference. Um, and then your first album you released in 1990 mm-hmm. under your own record label, right? Yeah. So, which is Righteous Babe Records, which yeah. you founded when you were 19 in 1989, mm-hmm. uh, which I will give a quote here. A people-friendly, I guess this is your mission statement, right? A mission, a people-friendly, sub-corporate, woman-informed, queer, happy, small business that puts music before rock stardom and ideology before profit. Mm. So why, why that? Why that? I mean, that was just, just sort of my ethos, you know, that I, that I had sort of uh, solidified around me and, again, my purpose, my, um, and the whole, like, yeah, being independent and staying independent. You know, 1990, there was not a lot of precedent. Um, uh, like I was saying earlier to the kids here at Guitar Mash, you know, um, you know, it was the record deal was the only barometer for are you a legit musician, um, performer. And I just, I had an attitude about that right from the beginning. You know, why are corporate record company peoples the arbiter of 
whether my art is legitimate art or whether it has a purpose. And so I sort of, you know, that was, I guess, part of my, my attitude as a young person. I just wanted to thwart that idea and that, that system. Um, so I just, you know, when I was 19 and I made my first cassette, I scribbled Righteous Babe Records onto it, but there was no there there. There was, that was just an idea you know, that I don't need a record company. And then slowly it became a record company, an mm-hmm. actual thing over the course of the next five, ten years. Well, how did you get your your first record out then? If you just had this cassette and you're like, all right, here's my master, how did you get people to listen to it? Uh, I was playing around in bars and coffee houses. Yeah. Um, and I would tell them to the people who were there, who were interested. I put an address. I got a P.O. box when I made my first. This is pre-internet, you know. I got a P.O. box, and I put that P.O. box on the cassette, and people started writing in. Like the cassette, uh, right from the first cassette, it had a life of its own. It made its way hand-to-hand, and then people wrote to the P.O. box and said, can she come play the women's march at my Kalamazoo University, you know. (laughs) And I started going and playing at student union halls and this and that. And that was my entree into touring. Um, In the early days, for the first five years at least, um, my, I mean, probably 10 years, I had no distribution, Mm -hmm. you know, because that was a major label scenario. I just... I had, I, you know, uh, I grew up in Buffalo, so I had, you know, 10 tapes on consignment at this store and that store in Buffalo, and then Rochester, and then Cleveland, and then, you know, and it's sort of slowly, organically built from there. It was, I was probably hmm, going on 10 years into a, quote, career in music before an independent distribution company Um, which was, I was, again, dead set against signing with a label. Mm -hmm. So when an independent distributor said enough people had walked into record stores asking for my records and nobody had them, and they would call these indies saying, do you have this obscurest thing? And finally they called me. Wow. It took 10 years, but... What what market did you find was, was holding onto your music the fastest? Was it like the Cleveland, everybody loved you in Cleveland, or everybody loved you? I guess Buffalo's where you're from. Well, New York, I mean, I moved to New York when I was 18, Mm -hmm. you know, the city. So uh, that was kind of probably the hub of my career for a long time. Um, I would say, in general, other young women were my first audience. And and then beyond that, you know, second ring, just other young radical political radicals, you mm-hmm. know, male, female, whatever, make and model, um, were the people who supported my art right from the beginning. And um, actually, before the uh, national distributor, um, something that factored in pretty heavily were there were these sort of newsprint black and white catalogs of women's music. Yes, that's right. Women's music. They're used to, I mean, I'm, that's how old I am. I remember in record stores, okay, now remember what those are. In the back <laughs> corner, there would be a section called women's music. And that's where I was racked in the beginning. And it was mostly dykes, you know, mm-hmm. um, feminists, all feminists. It's mm-hmm. just like a, if there's a feminist singing, she goes back in the back corner. Um, and so there were these women's music catalogs called Lady Slipper and Goldenrod. And they actually were the sort of the first national distribution of sorts for my cassettes and then CDs before they were actually distributed into mm-hmm. stores legit. And so you've always done this out of artistic integrity. Or you made your choices based on integrity and mm. not what's going to bring you the most money. Because it mm. sounds like you could have signed with yeah. a label a decade before you, you, you know, mm-hmm. like we'll put in quote, right, mm-hmm. made it successful. Mm. I um, did have offers. I had interests. I had lunches. I had free lunches and um, flirtations with record companies when I was young. And uh, each time I was like, yeah, I think what I'm trying to do this is not the right place. What were you trying to do? Uh, you know, I was trying to make radical art. And I think a big hooking up with a big business, a profit-motivated business. You know, I, I just always looked at 
you know, this sort of corporate music industry, uh, corporate, the interests of corporations and the interests of art, I think, are fundamentally contradictory, you know? So mm -hmm. not that there's something evil about the music industry or anybody in it or, you know, just that I, I had a sense that the interface that I was searching for with through my art with other people with the, the the connection that I was looking for that was not the right way you know I I when I flirted with that world and entertained the idea of signing with this company or that company I just looked at how they did business you know how they thought how what motivated them and I thought this is not aligned with how I think and what motivates me so you know besides making me rich and famous, like, how does this serve my path, you mm -hmm. know? Um, so I just, I was more about finding, finding my own way to reach people. You know? And you feel like you still got there? Yeah. You took, it took, took the longer road, but you still got longer. there? Yep. It, it, it took a lot of patience, you know, going to what you were asking about, like the early years of you're trying to ha have music be your job and 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 feed yourself and pay your rent and you have no distribution. And I started, you know, people would write to the P.O. box and offer me gigs and I'd get on a bus or a train and I'd go to that school or I'd go to that little club in the whatever town. And everything, everyone that came to my shows um, said to me for 10 years, I can't get your records anywhere. What, where can I get them? And I'm like, Lady Slipper, Goldenrod, you know, these obscure yeah. feminist music catalogs that if you go to a women's bookstore, you can ask the chick at the counter if maybe they can special order a tape for you. You know, I mean, it was a, it was an egg hunt. Yeah. Um, so it was a lose-lose situation. I can't sell a record. Nobody can buy a record that I made. Um so it took a lot of patience. I had to remind myself every day, why am I doing it this way? What is my point? I mean, I would see other young people, um, for instance, young women. They'd be opening for me in this little hole in the wall. Then they'd sign a deal. Within a year, they'd be on the cover of Rolling Stone, and I'd be back at that hole in the wall. And I did that for 10 years, and I saw all these people whiz past me, you know, on the industry track. And mm -hmm. I, I, it was hard, but, uh, but I'm so happy in the end, you know, uh, people look at me with jealousy now, you know, look at how your, how strong and sort of stable your audience is because it was built sort of or slowly and organically. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a, a different foundation than I never had a hit song. I never had a hit video or something on the radio. So that kind of lightning fast stardom can also burn out as quickly. But for me, because it was such a long, slow building process, it's a very sturdy house. You've got lifetime fans now. Well, I hope. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> so far, so good. And your, your label, I feel like... Um, I was reading up on that, and that's grown organically too. I, one of the things I was reading through the FAQs, and I, I found it very respectful um, or admirable, I guess, that mm. uh, you're like, can I just send you the demo? You're like, yeah, of course you can send us your demo, but we're not going to choose you based on your demo. Like, you got to go out there and hustle. Like, mm -hmm. I'm paraphrasing, mm -hmm. but you know, you got to play your gigs, you got to mm -hmm. build a name, and then we got to hear from you in addition to your demo. Mm -hmm. You know, you got to work your butt off too, mm -hmm. just like you did. And, you know, I respect that, that you're looking for artists and bands coming up with as much grit, we'll use mm -hmm. that word, right, as, as right. at what you have. And willingness to leave their house mm -hmm. and go everywhere and play for everyone and talk to everyone and have every experience of performing, of, of being on stage. And, you know, I think, you know, that is the essence. Maybe that's a good tie-in for what your podcast is really about, you know, because performing, mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the natural state of music. You know, music is not a commodity that comes in a plastic box or, or uh, ones and zeros. It's, it's a human interaction. Yeah. You know, performance in time and place, that's the, the natural state of music. It's a social act, you know? And so I think you know, yeah, my deepest love and the people that I relate to and connect to are people who are 
performance based, you know? Yeah, you can, you, you feel it. Like you literally, I mean, you emotionally feel it. You can physically feel it. Mm -hmm. And that's why I, I agree. When you go to these concerts and everyone's jumping up and down and like the bass, everyone, you have tens of people or hundreds or thousands, no matter how, or depending on how big your venue is, that are all for that moment in, in perfect, uh, they're, they're insane. Yeah. They're all together. They're yeah. all experiencing the same thing together. Yeah. And I, that's it, the healing. Yeah moment of music of yeah it's like connecting yourself to somebody else uh in a moment that's really the empowering and it brings thing. everyone together regardless of differences yeah. which is is so much of what you stand for mm -hmm. and uh i mean that's you you mentioned it earlier that we're here um in city winery it's the seventh annual urban campfire mm -hmm. uh yeah so it's unique and immersive musical musical experience where artists break down the wall between stage and the house and invite the audience to play and sing with them. When I was coming in, everybody like was wearing the guitar <laughs> on their back. Hundreds of guitars yeah, down guitar. there. Um, yeah. And, and so this year's theme, uh, I'm giving them a free plug here. I love it. Mm. Um, this year's theme is Songs for Change, which focuses on the power of music to generate awareness and bring people together. So mm -hmm. it's, it's perfect. Yeah. Um, but then... We obviously know you're not one to sell out or take a gig just because it's offered to you. So what spoke to you about this one? Why are you here today? Um, yeah, to just have the experience of, uh, you know, well, first of all, singing together, group singing, very healing, you know. Um, that's like, you know, just ask Pete Seeger. That's the ultimate is it's not even performers and people gawking at them in a moment, sharing a moment. It's everybody's making the music together. Mm -hmm. You know, that's probably the most inherent state of music. And um, so this is an experience where not only are people singing along, but they're playing along. <laughs> and I just, it just seemed too unique. Who could pass that up? Yeah. Do a gig with where everybody brings a guitar and plays with you. You should try that for one of your next concerts. I mean, we'll see yeah. how it goes down there. You have like the VIP section on the left and then the guitar yeah. playing section on the right. <laughs> and you could you could hand off yeah. the chorus to all your songs to the yeah, guitar man. playing section. That'd be great. Um, I want to go back to your label for a second and uh, talk about one particular artist that you've discovered, uh, Anais Mitchell, mm -hmm. right? composer of uh, of Hadestown, which is currently playing in London, coming to Broadway, yeah. so a theater show. Yeah. Um, how did you how did you find Aeneas? Uh, I saw her play in a little bar in Buffalo, and um, I was like, ooh, yeah, she has a thing. She has a thing. And uh, I, whenever I see a performer that I dig that's, you know, just out there on the periphery doing their thing, I... Um, you know, once I had established my audience, I'm like, you want to come open for me, share the stage, you know, just an excuse to hang out with people and enjoy their music. And um, so I brought her out on the road with me. And uh, then that sort of developed into, I released a few of her records on Righteous Babe. Um, she was searching for a outlet for her work. And then she came up with this Hadestown project and uh, contacted me early on. I mean, I think she was on my label at the time. And I got behind it early on, and that sort of helped propel it. And um, it went from, you know, a, a theater production in Vermont to an album that we realized with a bunch of different uh, performers, you know, uh, Justin Vernon, Bon Iver, you know, um, Greg Brown, uh, you know, who, who else is on that record? Me and Aeneas and all kinds of singers, I'm forgetting. And um, yeah, then she just kept, I mean, talk about a young person with conviction and staying power. She's been working on this Town show for a decade. Wow. Now she's still developing it. I mean, I think it's probably in its final stages now that it's going gonna, it's gonna to be on stage in London and headed for Broadway. Um, but yeah, as somebody who's been um, uh, going to Broadway shows lately, thanks to my daughter and her love of musical theater, even on Broadway, even at the top, even at the height of musical theater, a show with that's all amazing songs that you, that each one of them, you know, like a Hamilton. I mean, that's rare. That is rare. 
I think Hades Town is going to blow people away. Yeah. Because the the level of the songwriting and the music is 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 as high as it can be. And did you are you uh, producing it? You behind it that way? Uh, these days, no, no. I'm. It's out of my hands. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I'll be roped back in at some point, but yeah, Aeneas is just going for it. You know, they they had their. You know, their East Village stint a few years ago, and she keeps developing it. And, um, you know, she's got a lot of people on board now, so bless her. Have you ever thought about getting into the the producing side, the theater world like that? I mean, oh, well, I have been asked uh, a few different things, you know, like this Town project. Mm-hmm. I was involved in that uh, at, along the way, and... Um, Definitely, uh, lately I have been thinking about that idea of, because I've written hundreds of songs and just made a lot of my own damn records, um, you know, new writing challenges. I mean, uh, something I did the last few years was write a book, you know, Mm -hmm. that's coming out. So that was different, writing challenge. But yeah, recently the idea of yeah, writing a show that's not, not Annie D's songs about her life, but... Yeah, creating a context to compose music in and a storyline and um, writing around that. That could be an intriguing new sort of area to that's venture was, into. That's what I was kind of getting at. I was like, yeah. when are we going to see the Ani DeFranco musical? Yeah, right, And we right. got the Cher show coming out, and then there's like jukebox musicals galore. Yeah. Uh, I, think, I think your life would make a pretty good musical at this point. <laughs> yeah. Well, people have... have have brought that idea to me. I don't know about a musical based on me, but I'd love to, yeah, try writing not about me. <laughs> do you do you normally, I guess that's a good segue there. Do you, your songwriting, is that normally about like come about you on the inside or or do you or do you just write about things? Do you ever write about things that are completely just made up? Well, yes. Yes, exactly. That's what it all, it's what it is. It's both all the time. You know, uh, I try to write about what I know, you know, so often that's what I experienced and what I saw and what I felt about it. But sometimes it's what the guy next to me experienced or, um, you know, there's a lot in everybody's life that is not exactly and only them and exactly what happened. So as a writer, I take all kinds of license. I make all kinds of shit up, you know, (laughs) but I try to keep it close to home, you know, not speak for something or somebody so far outside of myself that I'm being presumptuous, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, But yeah, I would love to, you know, just I've been on the planet long enough now that I think I can you know, imagine and use the the sort of writing skills that I've garnered along the way to apply them to a different kind of project, you know, so that that could be kind of fun. Well, I will, I will go see it. All I, right. I think okay, there's good. a lot of people. Yes. Um, Two hands clapping. Yeah. Just be me out <laughs> in the Count audience. Count on yeah. you, man. Um, so the Broadway community in general over the past several decades has become incredibly active and vocal, especially with the rise of the AIDS crisis in the mm-hmm. 80s. Um, through various organizations, Broadway is always raising awareness for funds and not just for AIDS yeah. research, but for, for other causes like yeah. March for Our Lives and then women's health organizations, yeah. et cetera. Very and so, cool. so now with social media, the theater's reach is more vast than ever. And more and more people have the ability to get involved, both, you know, from a fan standpoint and from the the art the artistic standpoint. And actually um, our episode with with Bonnie Milligan, she kind of touched on this. Uh, she I asked her, she's because she's in head over heels, right? Which is um, representation of of plus size women and transgender and and LGBTQ and like you, mm. it's the spectrum. That's mm-hmm. an amazing show. Mm. Go see it if you haven't. Mm. Um, and and she said that with a platform like this now, like she's people are looking to her for all sorts of reasons, mm. and and for her, she feels like it's she's been given a gift that she is just wasting if she's not using mm-hmm. it to speak truth to mm-hmm. speak to to try to make people better mm-hmm. is is that why you got into like the 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 activism and the feminist movements and all that like what what put you there 
Well, I guess I started there, really. You know, it's not like, oh, look, I have an audience and a, and a platform. Let me use it. That was just always my bag, <laughs> you know, <laughs> is sort of talking about these social dynamics. I mean, first observing them and, um, and experiencing them and then trying to address it in song, in my art. Um, you know, all of these sort of power plays. Uh, amongst people, um, that fascinates me, you know. So, so I guess that was I always sort of looked at the world with a political lens, and it was sort of fundamental to my art. Um, but yeah, people have asked me a lot along the way. You know, is it? Do you feel a responsibility because you have a platform? Blah blah blah. And I think, I mean, my answer has always been: it's not a responsibility. We all have that responsibility. You know, I mean, if you're a Whatever you do, you you have the equal responsibility to stand in your truth, to represent it, you know, to respond to what's happening around you when it's not good, when it is good, you know, support the good stuff and the good folks doing it and um, push back, you know, uh, with all the bad stuff. And so, um, yeah, to me, it's like, no, I don't have any more responsibility than you do. Um, to be real and to try and make the world I want to live in. But I have an opportunity, you know, it, it really, it's like, yeah, why, you know, it is a gift. I think that's a good, a good word, you know, it's, we all share the responsibility, but some of us have the gift of having our voice be heard um, uh, more widely. And so that's, that's an opportunity. And, um, you know, it can also become, a burden for the people who go there, you know? I mean, it's like once you do step out on a limb, then you experience all kinds of ramifications for that. A lot of support, a lot of people going, oh, thank goddess, thank you, you know, and you've helped me so much. And exactly that's what I feel and experience too. And but you get a lot of pushback, you know, you get a lot of resistance. You get, and not only that, but like on the flip side, you get a lot of expectation and pressure. Um, then suddenly you become known for representing something, some quote cause, some uh, on a marginalized voice or experience. And then there, there comes an expectation, a pressure, uh, and then you find out that that pressure looks different coming from each individual. And to satisfy this person's idea of who you should be and what you should be doing would mean disappointing the person next to them. And the person, you know, there's a lot of, you know, I guess it's just being a public person, being a performer. Um, there's a lot of people to answer to. And the more you say, uh, the more there is to answer to, mm -hmm. you know. So it's a... But it's so, so worth it because all of those moments of affirmation, you know, where somebody comes up to you crying and trembling and says, you, you know, you saved their life or that makes it all worth it mm -hmm. every moment. And, and you seem, again, this, this goes back to you doing your truth, right? Yeah. You do it, you'd say what you want to say about the world and you just happen to have thousands of people that agree with you. Yeah, I mean, I think I think for anybody who is living their truth, I really believe that the, the, generally the universe will hold you mm -hmm. in that, you know, because there's room for all of us. Uh, I agree, yeah. Um, and then recently with the rise of social media, with the internet getting as big and reaching every corner of the globe as it can so so far, um, there have been a lot of, of changes that you've, that have, happened um, in terms of getting the word out about all of these causes. Uh, I guess, what's probably the most significant influence of change for you so far? Like social media yeah, related? Yeah, or like a, yeah, the platform, uh, if a platform's changed, so you don't have to go to rallies anymore, you can just make a video and put it on YouTube. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been resisting <laughs> that, <laughs> the change of you know, uh, organic beings uh, operating in time and space to life on a screen um, and activism on a screen and art on a screen. And 
uh, human interaction on a screen. I'm kind of old school. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty um, now based. And um, uh, so I think that it's changed less for me just because I've been really uh, in- intentional about that. But um, I don't really know how the young people of today and the people of the future will strike that balance. Um, I don't really, I'm as unsure of anybody else as what does clicktivism mean? What <laughs> does it do? Um, yeah. You know, I, th- I, I have this sense that most of the real change that occurs happens when we leave our houses, you know, and we go and experience each other and we make a real new relationship happen. You know, Mm -hmm. I think that that's how we empower ourselves is by connecting ourselves to other people. And then you're not alone anymore. Then you're not a voice in the wilderness. You're a part of something bigger and stronger, and therefore you are bigger and stronger. And I think that uh, can't necessarily be done or exclusively be done on a screen. yeah, and the social media, you know, it's it's interesting having been a performer before um, the advent of the internet even, really, let alone social media um, and the sort of high-velocity conversation of that. Um, I feel like it's a bit constricting having ex- been in the world as a performer before And now every moment that you spend in public is lives forever on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Um, It's again, the pressure of you have to stand behind every moment. Um, The mistakes that you make, even the hairdo that day or what you were wearing or, you know, it's like that becomes a very big choice, a very, you know, I think of, the stunts I used to pull when I was young and playing in bars. And it was only happening right there, right then, you know, and it was only us. And it was an experience that we were having together. And if it was hot and sweaty, I'd take my shirt off and so would everybody else. And now I would never do that because that's means something very different in the age of the internet and social media than it did when we were just, uh, you know, in 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 a specific time and place, and the freedom of that. You know, now everything has this weight, um, and uh, you know, I think it's a real challenge for us to bring a much more organic human approach to this eternity of life online, where you know we have to learn to whatever, forgive each other, let ourselves be human and fallible and ridiculous and um, more or less successful in any moment in what we're trying to do, even though it never goes away. What advice do you give to to people like your daughter's age who are asking these types of questions? I mean, again, just keep keep turning away from the screen and looking at what's around you. Keep making friends with actual faces, <laughs> you know, actual <laughs> friends with actual faces. Yeah. You know, cause that's what that's, you know, when the grid goes down and the world goes dark and everything is suddenly gone, that's all that really means anything. Keep a lot of cash under your mattress and <laughs> yeah. know, know your escape route. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, seriously, it's like we, I do, you know, with my kids, we, every summer we go, we have a month of no screen. You know, because uh, that was my life growing up. That was everybody's life in Mm -hmm. the 70s, you know, in the 80s. And and I just want them to know that the world still exists, even if all those gizmos fell into the sea. Yeah, that's my challenge. I've I've got two little kids, two boys, and my two-and-a-half-year-old. Like, he knows how to swipe through my phone Mm -hmm. and use the tablet and turn on Mm -hmm. the TV. And and we went—it was recently we went to on a vacation— and there, it was a TV in a hotel room, and there we, it's not on demand. We didn't have Netflix there. So they're like, what is that, Daddy? And I said, that's a commercial. Yeah, I know. It outraged. Uh, you're outraged. No. <laughs> I, wanted, I, want back, I want Bolt back now. Now. And, and so, like, 
That's one of, one of my big concerns is just, you know, this mm. on-demand generation now yeah. worries me so much that mm-hmm. they're just going to take everything for granted and then mm-hmm. not know how to just survive as people. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like to look up and to make eye contact and to, yeah, yeah. whatever. I know. mean, in general, or in a word, traveling. You know, yeah. like you were just talking, you know, of course, yeah, maybe you're going to show up somewhere in a hotel room with a TV and check it out, but really just going out into the world traveling, especially beyond the realm of the TVs and the gizmos. That's incredibly fortifying, I think, for us humans. Mm-hmm. I'm going to change gears a little bit here. With everything that's swirling around with our current presidential administration, do you feel like overwhelmed or 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 energized when it comes to taking more of a political stand on certain issues? Mm, well, I mean, it's overwhelming, uh, of course, um, how far we've slid. I'm not surprised at all. Um, I'm not shocked at all. I feel like uh, this is absolutely what... Uh, I saw coming uh, what many people saw coming. And so here we are. Um, As hard as it is, I try to take inspiration and uh, look at, you know, what is happening from the top down as the shadow side of what is really happening from the ground up. Mm -hmm. And I, I do in my heart believe that, that what we're experiencing in this time and place, in this culture, is an awakening. Um, and that it's the pushback, it's the resistance um, of the good old boys, of the people who have had all the power um, for all of human history to having to share it. Um, so, you know, it's uh, it's an incredibly painful thing to watch. It's um, an incredibly destructive thing, this pushback in a lot of people's lives, but I I hope that the lasting result of this political era will be a great and positive change mm-hmm. for those of us that survive. Yeah. Yeah. Everything uh, all seems to be culminating at once. And I think the, the administration sort of ripped a Band-Aid off of what was already there mm-hmm. and people just didn't want to talk about. So, you know, just like uh, some good therapy, right? Once you talk about it, you can deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really hope I agree with you that I think this is unfortunately sort of a necessity to get us where we need to go. Right. You know, but, um, yeah, so I, I feel the same way as you. I'm kind of overwhelmed, but a little bit excited to move past it and see what we're going to become. I mean, you can look at the last, you know, the midterms elections and how many women are now holding public office Mm -hmm. as compared to the day before, uh, November 6th, and um, it's very hopeful. Yeah, I agree. So uh, we'll wrap up here soon, but I want to touch on something that you actually mentioned early on, that you have a book. Yeah. A book coming out yeah. on May 7th, 20, Don't hate me. 2019. <laughs> There's a lot of damn words in that book. Well, yeah. books are supposed to have words. I hate, I to, know. hate to break it to you. I know. Talk about standing behind something forevermore. Well, you've done several poetry books, but mm-hmm. now this is a memoir uh, yeah. called No Walls and the Recurring Dream. What What is this, uh, what, what is it focusing on? Uh, mostly it's sort of a coming of age story. I mean, I, um, I sort of went from childhood to about 2001, 9-11, mm-hmm. to, to be specific, where I was in New York at the time and um, so yeah, it's sort of just about the making of The Righteous Babe, not the remake, <laughs> you know, right. that's still happening. Yeah. So what do you hope when people are reading it, what do you hope they take away from it? Well, I try not to calculate that or even worry about that too much. I mean, I've just, I, I tried to just be in the moment in the challenge, in the process of writing complete sentences and count or, or hope that somehow this book will do the, the work that the songs have done, which I never calculated, you know, just like be in my skin, write my truth the way I feel it in the moment and ho- hope that that's of use 
to somebody. And the songs have done good work and, um, and I guess, you know, been inspiring to others to become themselves. You know, I've, I've often felt that, well, you know, what I'm saying and doing in my songs is not check me out, do as I do. I have all the answers from on high. It's more check me out. I'm just doing me and getting away with it, <laughs> you know? And I love my favorite, you know, thing that people come and say to my face is because you, I went and X, Y, Z, you know, I went and did my own crazy thing and invented my wheel, you know, and that's, so, you know, I hope that the book does that similar kind of work in the world, but whatever it's up to, it's not up to me. Yeah. So I assume in the book too, you'll touch on Babeville, which is another plug. I want to give you the opportunity here to, to touch on. Uh, so what is Babeville? Well, Babeville is a venue I uh, opened up in Buffalo, New York. Um, it doesn't factor in the, into the book because no. that's, that's post 2001. Um, but yeah, it was like, you know, it's an old 1780s or 1870s, sorry, cathedrals in bu downtown Buffalo, which was going to be demolished because Buffalo is a poor city, you know, sort of an evacuated uh, city center, um, you know, a lot of beautiful old buildings and infrastructure that have fallen by the way of economic devastation. So here was this cathedral that was going to be demolished because some stones were falling out of the you know, the, the gargoyles and shit. So <laughs> we saved it, Righteous Babe. That's one of the things that we've done um, because my mother is an architect and I've, I've, I've long been connected with the importance of cities as centers of culture and ideas, of the infrastructure of cities as being sort of the repository for our human souls and experience. And, you know, when you reach out and grasp a doorknob that hundreds and thousands of hands have grasped and turned, you know, it connects you to, 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 to the past and therefore to the future. And um, so I think that these old buildings uh, are very important to our, our soul and the life of our, our human soul. So, yeah, we saved this church and then, you know, we thought, geez, our karma was wrapped up in it. So we just took it over made it into a venue and the, the home of Righteous Babe. and But no, none of that's in the book. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, then I'm, I'm glad we touched on it here. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I didn't actually plan on covering this, but but you've mentioned it so much that you you uh, you publicly acknowledge that you're an atheist, right? Yeah. yeah? Not, you, not religious. Yeah, not religious. Say, yeah. But you talk about connection and, and karma and mm. being just mm. what some, I guess, most would call spirituality. Is, yeah, is, sure. Are these two different things in your mind or is it all just the same that some people have sort of categorized differently? Well, my very uh, opinionated and uh, particular perspective is that organized religion is organized patriarchy. So that's um, the foundation of patriarchy globally. Um, so, you know, I, uh, but then many people have used many patriarchal paradigms to do great things. Mm -hmm. So it's not that it's a complete dead end, but um, uh, for me, um, the idea of God as he, or for, you know, once you start there, it's like, okay, so there's a particular person telling this story and you know, just that flip of the script of the man as the creator just seems like, really? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. you know, uh, really? Right. So, okay. You know, I have a this song uh, called All Righty um, on my last record, um, you know, where I just talk about, you know, next time I see a man give birth, I'll picture the creator as a dude <laughs> with a beard, you know? Um, sure. Uh, you know, but so, so for me, um, I, I mean, I think just the body that I come in has made me, uh, sets me slightly to the uh, side of, of all these organized religions. Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean that consciousness, that the unifying field of consciousness that connects us all, that 
that is the underlying reality beyond this fallacy of separation of you and me right now is not completely captivating and motivating to me and that I don't want to serve that as much as a deeply religious person mm-hmm. might want to in their own context and language. Right. Yeah, that makes total sense. I think there's there's so much of a spectrum between, you know, the devout religious and the atheist and then like but it's all the same thing. It's all the same spectrum. You would hope. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and that's that's speaks back to what you were talking about of just bringing us together despite our differences is mm-hmm. that, you know, we're all we're all the same on a mm-hmm. on a very fundamental level. So, you know, why are we shooting each other, but yeah. I digress. Amen, brother. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a couple, three closing uh, standard questions that yeah. we ask all the guests here. Okay. Um, very simply, what motivates you? Uh, um, just the feeling of, of solace and, and, and um, power that uh, comes with connecting myself to somebody else. Beautiful. You know, so I use art to, mm-hmm. to, to do that. And what advice would you give to your younger self or younger people listening now starting out down a similar path? Hmm. What advice? Um, geez. I mean, I guess, I guess patience. You know, patience, patience, my young child. I mean, I think I had a, a good dose of it, you know, to sort of go the the long road, um, but yet not, you know, so many interviews along the way where the guy across the table was looking at me sideways going, you know, basically justify yourself, right. you know, and I had my hackles up and I was battling everyone. And it's like, why? Why? Just yeah. accept that there is a world of resistance enjoy it enjoy the process of of killing people with kindness and 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 insisting on your humanity until they can't deny it any longer wonderful and this last question for the standard broadway guest um we restrict I, I would restrict to a broadway show but for you uh well what you can pull you can either be broadway show mm. or or performance of any kind but if you could only see one show for the rest of your life but you can see it as many times as you want what would you see well hamilton i mean i feel like it's already <laughs> happened because uh, my daughter got so into the soundtrack that i listen to it every day for years I know every song by heart. And the amazing thing that I know from experience is it doesn't get old. That's the level of writing yeah. going on in that music. Um, uh, so, yeah, having already been there for <laughs> the rest of my life on a desert <laughs> island with the Hamilton soundtrack, it's pretty good times. Or just marooned with Lynn Manuel and he yeah, just recites no, that the whole would, show that would for do you. The fine. Whole time. <laughs> I just love him already. Well, uh, yeah. So you most certainly don't do media engagements that you don't want to do. So sincerely, thank you for giving me this interview today. It means a lot. Sincere and, pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, for everybody listening, you can find Ani online, either righteousbabe.com and anydefranco.com, facebook.com slash RBR records, on Twitter at righteous underscore babes and at Ani DeFranco, on Instagram, righteous babe <laughs> and Ani DeFranco, and on YouTube slash, uh, youtube.com slash righteous babe rex, R E C S. And of course, you can find more of me at theater, po- theater underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter, facebook.com slash official theater podcast. You can listen and subscribe via the theaterpodcast.com. Everywhere you find your podcast, please give an honest review. I want to read them. This is produced by Jillian Hockman. And of course, a big thank you to our friends, Jukebox the Ghost, for the lovely intro and outro music that you are hearing underneath you being played right now. Everybody have a lovely day. Ani, thank you so much for this. Again, it's been wonderful. Thank you. Take a deep breath, make the world a little colorful. 
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.